Hello and welcome to Battlecast, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and today we're jumping right back into the Deep Fryer with the military history of Liberia. But before we can do that, I've got to thank Jim from Redding, California, and Jason from Austin, Texas for buying us around. And if you want to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit the Make a Donation button. I've also got to thank Connor and Greg for the awesome emails. You know, it's funny, I almost wish you guys could see my inbox. Two-thirds of the emails I get are super nice, very thankful for the show. Then about one-third are about how I'm the personification of evil and all that's wrong with the world. I gotta ask my mother-in-law to quit sending those. But now, here's a complete history of violence on the west coast of Africa. In 1823, the Liberian-American-derived population numbered just 150 souls. And the fledgling nation was still a colonial subject of the United States of America. If her numbers were small, the country was still growing. Whatever they were, the freed black American settlers were busy. They built a large tower with six cannon to defend their coastal settlement, and their population expanded at a rapid clip. David Reese provides the details, quote, A steady stream of colonists called Americos continued to arrive from the United States. One ship brought 105 settlers in February 1824, all healthy. But after four weeks in rain-soaked Liberia, all were sick. Another 60 colonists arrived in March 1825, and more continued to arrive throughout the next two decades. The settlers' toehold on Africa's western coast was rapidly emerging as an American colonial beachhead. To complement this swelling population, the white agents of the African Colonization Society who were sponsoring this settlement embarked upon a program of territorial expansion that would occupy the colony for most of the rest of the century. Society agents purchased rights to a sizable tract of land near St. Paul's River. Indeed, from 1822 to 1915, the Americo population and their allies fought 16 wars against native African tribes who were not united in a single native grouping but were rather isolated by ethnicity. With each war, the Americo population gained new land and pushed further into the interior, paving the way for further Americo-Liberian domination. In addition, United States naval ships were dispatched in 1843, 1876, 1910, and 1915 at the government's request to help in Liberia's conflicts with slavers and native tribes. This assistance usually proved crucial and often made the difference between the life and death of the colony. Moreover, the United States often employed influence, diplomatic clout, and financial help on Liberia's behalf. The American freed settlers confronted a complex pattern of indigenous people divided into at least 16 tribes. Related linguistically to one of three major language families, they shared some common characteristics, but each tribe was distinct. They differed markedly in what one researcher called culture, degree of political cohesion and organization, ability and resolution to resist Americo-Liberian domination, and responsiveness to modernization, end quote. Meanwhile, Lot Carey, a remarkable black American who had worked tirelessly to buy his own and his family's freedom, was becoming one of the first true black leaders of the Americo-Liberian colony. He worked like a tiger, constantly building, educating, and medicating his growing colony. Carey was the only physician in the small settlement. In his own words, Carey said he wanted to, quote, wake up the dormant energies of his many black brethren, 
who he believed had talents to labor sufficiently in Africa as teachers and preachers, end quote. In other words, Carey worked tirelessly for self-determination, helping to prove in his own small way the universal saliency of the idea of self-rule. But Carey, who had worked more than anyone else to gain independence for his people, would never see the promised land. Like Moses before him, he died from an accidental explosion before Liberia attained self-rule, one of the first modern black nations to do so. By 1828, the Liberian colony was prospering, even though white agents sent out to benevolently rule the settlement kept dying. I could waste four hours trying to summarize the early history of Liberia, but David Reese has already done an excellent job, so I'll just quote him. Quote, Trade flourished, and new settlers arrived in an endless flow. Between 1820 and 1843, some 4,571 immigrants went to Liberia. However, because of the high death rate, 20%, only 1,819 remained in 1843, and new settlements began to appear. Following the American Colonization Society's establishment in 1816, local societies had sprung up in much of the country. These societies promoted colonization and sponsored immigrants. Some even established their own independent settlements. The most notable was Maryland's colony at Las Palmas, more than 250 miles down the coast from Monrovia at Liberia's most southern point. The first settlers arrived there in February 1834. They came in groups of hundreds in a kind of reverse Mayflower. One group of 126 settlers were strict pacifists. They even banned the ownership of guns. Unfortunately, the neighboring Bassa tribesmen were decidedly not pacifists. Within six months, they massacred the new settlers and destroyed the colony. Still, by and large, the Americo-Liberian settlement slowly expanded and conjoined. In addition, from 1820 to 1860, the U.S. Navy added 5,744 captives rescued from slave ships to Liberia's growing population, end quote. In 1839, the American Colonization Society gave Liberia much more self-rule. Although still technically a colony operating under white American executive agents, the newly formed Commonwealth had much more independence, electing officials and taking on more and more functions of government. For example... While the governor was a white American, the legislature and the lieutenant governor were black American settlers elected by their fellow colonists, and these elected leaders had real power. And they also had real problems. The area comprising Liberia was and had been for years a part of the African slave trade. Local tribes profited greatly from the illicit trade in human beings. Naturally, the Americo-Liberians tried to stamp out the trade in the area where they ruled, but this brought them into direct conflict with native tribes who thrived on the slave trade and had thrived on it for centuries. Accordingly, native tribes often launched attacks on Americo settlers, but they didn't do it for long. One thing the Americos had was a healthy belief in the right to carry and bear arms. In one punitive expedition, 300 Americo militiamen all but destroyed a local tribe who had dared attack an Americo settlement. This was bloody warfare. And any objective observer is reminded of the United States' conflicts with Native Americans. A similar process was taking place on a smaller scale in Liberia. From 1839 to 1849, the Americo-Liberians, who, for the sake of simplicity, I will just call Americos from here on out throughout this series, fought a series of wars against various Native factions in order to end the slave trade in Liberia. 
Of course, I don't think the slave trade was a good thing at all, but there was something else that the Liberians did when they made treaties with defeated indigenous tribes. They formalized claims to the physical interior of the nation, and they, along with black American soldiers, used both formal and informal means to turn the native population into serfs. This would later serve as a key source of Americo domination in future years. Don't take my word for it. Here's how Stephen Ellis describes the process. Quote, The rule of Americo officials and their client chiefs was supported by the Liberian Frontier Force. This armed force lived off the land, commandeering labor, food, and other requirements at will. The brutality of the Liberian Frontier Force is well attested. The army was dominated by Americo officers and supported by a number of African Americans on secondment from the U.S. Armed Forces. Rank-and-file soldiers were the personal servants of senior government officials and army officers. The Frontier Force used a heavy hand to force the hinterland peoples to submit to the rule of Monrovia. This provoked a series of armed rebellions, the last of them as late as the 1930s. Serfs of the hinterland had to pay hut tax, which is a tax on individual native housing utilized by numerous colonial powers to force natives to work in colonial systems. The Americo army also used a host of other financial charges far heavier than taxes used in the coastal settlement Americo areas. According to one modern study, in 1925, the hut tax on the tribal population stood at $300,000, whereas the property tax, the main tax, on the Americo population was only $4,668 for the entire nation. The hut tax not only provided the government with revenue, but also forced natives to offer their labor for hire as workers for Firestone or the other companies which established themselves in the country. Successive Americo governments used the Firestone Rubber Agreement as a model for further concessions to foreign investors in return for royalties which provided the government with the funds with which to build a centralized administration, which also provided well-paying jobs for the Americo aristocracy. The Americo administration actually preferred working with and enriching foreigners because the foreigners did not use their newly won money to organize political opposition to Americo rule, end quote. In short, the whole oligarchical surf system was all tied up with a nice, neat bow. Once again, I'm reminded of Orwell's Animal Farm. The creatures outside look from pig to man, and from man to pig, and from pig to man again. But already it was impossible to say which was which. If only you young socialists could remember Animal Farm, our nations might have a chance to reach the stars. I also want to point out that under our current theology of liberal humanism, some people believe Western nations are uniquely evil. For example, Susan Sontag said Europeans were the cancer of history. Well, they should look in the mirror. As Solzhenitsyn said, the line of good and evil goes through the heart of all humanity. Solzhenitsyn was right, and the case study of Liberia proves him right. Here are black Americans colonizing and subjugating black Africans. The cases of Haiti and San Domingo relations, not to mention the precarious history of mixed-race Haitians themselves, along with the history of Cape Colors in South Africa and the brutal history of interracial slavery in the Muslim world, unequivocally and empirically demonstrates that sexual mixing between populations will not bring about some sort of utopian peace. Rather, we should meet each other with respect, acknowledging and accepting our differences as an inherent part of the human condition, like adults, rather than wishing for some utopian post-ethnic future that has never and will never exist. Not strangers, not brothers, cousins. Not hate, not love, respect. Not left, 
not right, above. Now, I could fill this podcast with stories of Americo domination, and oftentimes the Americos themselves came close to being wiped out, at least at the local settlement level. But I'll let African historian Dr. Harrison Akingbade describe some of the more violent conflicts. Quote, as soon as militia force was organized, it began to play a prominent role in the suppression of the slave trade within the territorial limits of the colonial settlements. The campaign against the slave trade gave the settlers an opportunity to acquire more and more territories and also to establish their jurisdictional authority over the Africans. On many occasions, the slave trade was used as an excuse to crush African resistance to Americo-Liberian rule. The colonial militia defeated the Africans again and again so that the settlers were able to dictate treaties, forcing the Africans to cede their lands. The good intentions of suppressing the slave trade were vitiated by territorial aggrandizement on the part of the settlers. End quote. Now I want to stop right here. Notice how the Americos justified their expansion by appeals to liberal values, in this case suppressing the slave trade. But at the same time, the Americos are increasing their own domination of the African interior, which will ultimately culminate in second-class citizenship and serfdom, coupled with forced labor for the indigenous African population. As Carl Schmidt notes, liberalism often does this. It proclaims itself as serving humanity, while in the end it actually furthers the domination of those who proclaim liberalism. George Orwell made the same point in Animal Farm. As always, as our father Aesop warned us over 2,500 years ago, we should judge people by what they do, not what they say. Anyway, Dr. Akingbade continues his description of the settler native wars with these words, quote, On April 9, 1826, a concerted expedition was conducted by the Americo militia against Trade Town, a notorious slave market 100 miles southwest of Monrovia. The attack on Trade Town was not easy. Both the French and Spanish slavers put up stiff resistance, but they could not hold their ground for very long. The colonists and their allies advanced upon the town, destroyed their arsenals, and forced their enemies to retreat into the jungle in great confusion. The crew of Trade Town, in conjunction with their Spanish collaborators, came out of the jungle and resumed the battle. After a bloody war, the colonists were victorious, and the town was raised to ashes, the embers dancing into the sky like New Year's fireworks. On January 16, 1827, the colony signed a peace treaty with King West, which the king promised never again to engage in the slave trade. The treaty also included a provision by which the king accepted the authority of the colony over his dominion. This same sort of process repeated itself up and down the interior of Liberia. The African chiefs of the Liberian coast consciously recognized the superior authority of the Americo-Liberians. Some of the chiefs had actually felt the strength of the colonists. For instance, in 1832, King Brumley and the D tribe joined the list of those chiefs who had been humiliated on the battlefield when he suffered defeat at the hands of the colonists. What happened was that several of Brumley's slaves escaped from their guards and took shelter in Monrovia. Consequently, King Brumley sent his son, Kai Pai, to Monrovia to ask the governor to return his escaped slaves. The governor's aversion to the slave trade and his contempt for the chief would not permit him to give an immediate response. However, it was not long before Brumley, enfeebled by a persistent ailment, succumbed to death. Shortly afterwards, Brumley's son, Kai Pai, succeeded him. The new king was seething with vengeance. He proceeded to Monrovia, where he demanded imperiously that the slaves be handed over to him immediately, 
When his demand was refused by the colonists, he mustered a force of armed men and resolved to seize Monrovia, the capital. All of a sudden, the settlers were in a fight for their very existence. Kai Pai started the aggression by seizing colonists and runaway slaves. Indignant, the Liberian governor dispatched a company of troops of mostly recaptured Africans, former slaves rescued from the slave trade, to repulse the aggression on the colony. The D and their allies successfully repulsed the troops and forced them to retreat. On March 20th, 1832, the colonial militia marched to King Brumley's town. On the following day, the town was taken, having been evacuated by the D. From there, the army proceeded to King Willie's town. The town was heavily fortified, but with the aid of cannon, the colonists were able to crush their enemies. The D lost 15 men, including King Kai Pai. Among the colonists, there were only one casualty, and three were seriously wounded. The battle ended with the burning of Willie's town. On March 26, 1832, the Native Alliance sued for peace, and their representatives came to Monrovia on March 30th to sign a peace treaty. The victory of the colonists reverberated beyond the D and Gola territories. Each defeat suffered by the Africans helped to reinforce in their minds the superiority of the newcomers. It was not long before it dawned upon them that sheer superiority in number was no longer a decisive factor in a military encounter. The colonists, although numerically inferior, were armed with muskets and cannons. It became almost suicidal for the Africans, armed with such simple weapons as knives, spears, bows, and arrows, to engage in military confrontation with the colonists. End quote. More conflicts soon followed. On June 10, 1834, the settlement at Bassa Cove was attacked by a local chieftain named Joe Harris. Twenty settlers were killed in the climactic battle which followed. Keep in mind, many more colonists were wounded in the ensuing battle. The attack sent shockwaves throughout Liberia. Immediately, a 120-man militia was dispatched to Basakov. They attacked King Harris's capital, and the king was forced to flee and sue for peace with the Americos after the settlers had utterly laid waste to Harris's town. Now, these little vignettes make it sound like conflicts were sporadic, but actually, there were so many different native tribes and clans that conflict both between Americo settlers and natives and conflicts between the natives themselves was taking place all the time. An African historian explains, quote, The series of skirmishes between the Americo-Liberians and the Grebo stemmed primarily from the land and commercial policies of the colonists in Cape Palmas, where over 40,000 Africans of Grebo stock had been living for several centuries. During the 1840s, the major source of the problems was unceasing warfare among the various clans of the Grebo over boundary disputes. The settlers' policy of forcible acquisition of land from the Africans precipitated most of the wars between the Grebo and the colonists. It was this policy that precipitated war between the Americos and the Grebo in 1856. In 1856, Governor Drayton felt that it was time the Grebo were made to adopt the, quote, civilized habits, end quote, and customs of the immigrants. To carry out his objective, Governor Drayton adopted an unsavory strategy, which was to exploit intra-ethnic feuds by enlisting the alliance of his enemies of one to defeat the other. In December 22, 1856, he commenced what the Grebo considered aggression, by ordering their immediate removal from the Cape and offering to purchase their towns. So, all right, let's get this straight. Governor Drayton said, hey, you Grebo have a nice town here. Now, you're all going to leave. And if you don't leave, I'm going to make you leave. So I'll give you the price I think is right. You get out. All right, so that's the deal he's making with the Grebo. I'm going to continue the quote now. The Grebo defiantly refused to part with their ancestral homeland. Thereupon, the governor declared war on them on December 23rd by hastily mobilizing the militia force. 
The war moves swiftly, like a burning flame. Many Grebo towns were burnt down by the colonial militia, but they could not achieve any decisive victory until December 27th. Neither of the parties could claim total victory. The war had reached a stalemate, and if prolonged, the colonists might suffer a paralyzing defeat or even total extermination. Governor Drayton felt the time had come to rid the area of the Grebo menace and would have nothing less than a total showdown. Having been defeated, he appealed to the capital, Monrovia, for aid, stressing the precarious urgency of the situation. Before the arrival of aid from Monrovia, the Grebo had set fire to the Protestant Episcopal mission at Mount Vaughan and destroyed the station. A number of houses belonging to the settlers were also burnt down. On January 18, 1857, disaster struck. The colonists lost 23 men and quite a bit of ammunition. A number of volunteers had boarded a canoe in which was mounted a brass piece of ordnance. Having reached their destination and while discharging the brass piece at one end of the canoe, it sank and the Grebo got possession of the gun as well as small arms. This success encouraged the Grebo and hearted their defiance at coming to terms with the colonists. Meanwhile, on February 11, 1857, the government of Monrovia sent 115 men under the command of General J.J. Roberts, ex-president of Liberia, to relieve the colonists at Maryland. Both the officers and the recruits of these reinforcements performed brilliantly, and their inestimable services actually redeemed Maryland from all-out destruction. The timely arrival of this large force had a tremendous impact upon the Grebo. The heavy artillery of the Americos was especially decisive. Seeing that victory was inevitable, Governor Drayton sent a messenger with a white flag to the Grebo, proposing to them to come in and hold a conference. The Grebo, overwhelmed and completely exhausted, accepted this offer of peace. On February 23, 1857, Yellow Will, head chief of many ethnic Grebos, came in. A treaty was drawn up and signed by the colonists with the Grebo. The treaty imposed a heavy indemnity upon the Grebo, 12,000 pounds of rice. The colonists were to pay the Grebo $1,000 worth of goods as price for the Grebo land they occupied, end quote. Thus peace was established with the Grebo. Thus was the nation of Liberia born, expanded, and sustained, not with talk, but with burned cities and blood. In January of 1842, the American Colonization Society appointed governor of Liberia, Thomas Buchanan, died. The lieutenant governor and Americo, Joseph Jenkins Roberts, was then appointed governor. He was the first non-white governor of Liberia. On October 27th, the small number of male Americo-Liberians voted to become independent from the American Colonization Society. On July 27, 1847, Liberia proclaimed a Declaration of Independence, adopted a constitution largely created by a Massachusetts lawyer and extremely similar to the United States Constitution, adopted a flag that is totally similar to the American flag, and became an independent state. However, just like in our modern world, independence often masks dependence. And if you don't believe me, just ask the hundreds of thousands of Armenians who have been forced to flee their homeland in recent years because their protector Russia did not protect them from aggression. How sovereign is a country that depends on another for protection in a dangerous world? Sovereign is he who decides. In the case of the Armenian enclave, Russia was sovereign, not the Armenian government. The same holds true for all nations and people groups everywhere for all time forever. Now, I want to get to the Liberian Civil War again, so I'll let a historian summarize the period from Liberian independence to the native uprising against the Americos. Quote, and so, over the years, the United States-Liberian relationship ebbed and flowed. It began with high American interest in abolishing the slave trade, providing a home for freed blacks, 
and spreading Christianity up to the Civil War, followed by a period of American isolationism, which gradually gave way in the 20th century to heightened interest in Liberia as a supplier of rubber and iron ore, and finally as an ally in World War II and the Cold War. End quote. There, in a nutshell, is summarized Liberia's key foreign policy and economic decisions for more than 100 years. And during those 100 years, Americo-Liberians, along with a small population of native recruits, continued to dominate Liberia politically, economically, and socially. That's when Liberia exploded. This is the story of that explosion. In 1943, William Tubman, in Americo, was elected president of Liberia. He and his true Whig party would rule Liberia in the interest of the Americo-ethnic group for 28 years. He also successfully modernized the economy, often using harsh labor practices for indigenous Liberians in order to do so. By harsh labor practices, I mean forced labor and a sort of modern serfdom. But hey, they didn't use the term slave, so that makes it okay, right? However, Tubman did carry out meaningful change. I want to give credit where it's due, especially when considered in a contemporary African context. A modern historian explains what he did. Quote, By 1955, Tubman could boast of a huge increase in schools, roads, and health clinics, amenities that benefited all Liberians. Tubman called his efforts to bring 20th century civilization to the hinterland and to incorporate natives into Liberia's body politic his, quote, unification policy, end quote. It culminated in the 1964 Unification Act, which finally put an end to the second-class citizenship of 98% of Liberia's population. The act reconfigured the hinterland territories as counties and granted their propertyed residents the right to vote. But having the vote and being a member of the vast majority of a nation's population did not naturally result in equality or access to power and wealth. For what really mattered in Tubman's Liberia was the same thing that had always mattered in Liberia. Family. The elite in Monrovia called themselves the Honorables, and the Honorables possessed wealth and privilege and further set themselves apart through formal speech, high church Christianity, and etiquette. The Honorables ran Liberia, and they owned most of it as well. They occupied almost all high government posts, monopolized the best-paying managerial positions set aside by foreign firms for Liberian nationals, and took the best land for themselves. The roads that Tubman built to connect the coast to the hinterland were used by the Honorables to motor out to their rubber plantations, which they had carved out of native lands, not with the sword, but with the help of Monrovian lawyers wielding pins and judicial writs. Natives hoping to get ahead in Tubman's Liberia, just like ambitious individuals among the settler middle and lower classes, had to secure the patronage of an Honorable, and this discriminatory situation went on for decades, end quote. In 1971, Tubman died, and he was succeeded by another Americo president named William Tolbert Jr., who eased up on political suppression that had been rampant under Tubman. A few years later, trouble started in earnest. In 1979, more than 40 people were killed and many more injured in riots when the government proposed increasing the price of rice. I want you to think about that. How many of you go to Walmart and pick from tens of thousands of products, all affordable, by the way? Now imagine you're totally dependent on one or two crops like rice for survival. That's what I mean when I say Americans are blessed beyond measure. But how many of your children say the Pledge of Allegiance in middle and high schools up and down this nation? There is a lack of understanding in this situation, a failure to realize how fragile all this miraculous abundance really is. Anyway... It was in the early 1970s that two political-slash-metapolitical institutions were born. 
The first was the Movement for Justice in Africa, MOJA for short, which originally formed to protest white minority rule in South Africa, Namibia, and Rhodesia, but later came to protest Americo-Liberian rule. This was a more tame organization run by Liberian intellectuals. It was academic, in other words. However, another organization formed at a similar time, which was linked to Moja and run by intelligent natives, but which had a mass appeal and worked for Ujamaa, a sort of African socialism, which in a typically African cultural setting discounts the individual and uplifts the community as a whole. I'm sure you all remember Ujamaa from your traditional Kwanzaa celebrations. I remember it, and I'm not joking. I've been to a few Kwanzaa celebrations as a guest, and I'm thankful for the opportunity I had to attend. I don't want Ujamaa personally, but I want my cousins who do want it to have it in peace and without malice. Anyways, James Kimmett picks up the story, quote, This second organization, the more radical one with an uneducated and working class base, was called the Progressive Alliance of Liberia, or PAL for short. For all their efforts to identify with the working poor of Monrovia and the illiterate tribal peasantry of the hinterland, both Moja and PAL remained elitist operations. Most Liberians were barely aware of the organization's existence. There was also no reason to think they could make inroads with the long-suffering and disenfranchised native poor who represented 95% of the population. In fact, it would not be the activism of Moja and Pal that would ultimately spark the political awakening of the natives and bring down the true Whig establishment. It would be something far more prosaic. It often always is. A bag of rice, or more precisely, the price people had to pay for it. By Tolbert's day, roughly one-fourth of the nation's 200,000 tons of annual rice consumption came from abroad, most of it from the United States. So critical was rice to the Liberian diet that the government imposed strict price controls. No one could charge any more or less than 22 American dollars for a 100-pound sack. Yet the government offered little help to the 137,000 small farmers trying to grow rice for profit on small plots that averaged two and a half acres. Like many other African nations, Liberia placed a higher premium on social peace in the capital than economic development in the countryside. The results were predictable. A steady flow of impoverished peasants swelled Monrovia's slums and the ranks of the unemployed expanded. The new urban poor, forced out of rice growing, still needed it for sustenance. Thus, when the agricultural minister Florence Chinoweth suggested amid the general inflation of 1979 to raise the price of a sack to $30, there was an uproar. The activists of Moja and Pal were convinced the rise in price was unnecessary. Liberia's largest importers of rice were companies controlled by President Tolbert's family, and there was a sense that corruption was worse than ever. Meanwhile, the 1970s were punctuated by a series of economic shocks across the industrialized world as a supplier of raw materials to one of the hardest-hit sectors, automobile manufacturing, Liberia's economy went to a tailspin. For the poor, this meant real suffering. For the rising generation of educated natives, it meant frustration. A lot of these indigenous people were coming back home from their schooling abroad and demanding their piece of the action, noted Archie Bernard, the radicalized son of one of Liberia's wealthiest families. We're supposed to be part of this too, they said. That is why President Tubman told us to go to school. So where's my opportunity? End quote. Pal leaders, who for the most part were children or adopted native wards of Liberia's Americo elite, sought to organize a protest of the rice price increase. Now, the right to freely assemble was enshrined in the Liberian constitution. It was there in black and white. 
Tolbert didn't give a shit. He simply banned Powell from forming a lawful assembly, which they had the right to do, and which goes to show how much constitutions and papers and reams of laws drafted in Massachusetts will secure your rights when power decides to take them away. What did Carl Schmidt say? Sovereign is he who decides, and I've been proving it for 86 shows now. Anyway, many prominent Liberians begged the leadership of Powell to call off the demonstration. A few hours... Before the start of the protest, Powell's leadership gave in. They called off the protest, but by then it was too late to stop. An historian takes up the story, quote, As Powell leaders tried to disperse the 2,000 protesters massed in front of the organization's offices on Randall Street, security forces stormed the building. A group of demonstrators broke away and headed for the executive mansion, where they were met by water cannons, tear gas, and live fire in the air at first, and then, after several policemen were injured directly at the protesters. All hell broke loose, as the demonstrators were joined and soon overtaken by thousands of young men and boys from Monrovia slums and the worst rioting in the country's history. It took three days and 700 troops from neighboring Guinea, Tolbert and Chesson, his right-hand man, did not trust Liberian soldiers to shoot their own countrymen, to suppress the rioting. Hundreds of businesses were looted and by the official count, 41 persons killed, though most suspected the actual total was several times that. Tolbert had 40 PAL and Moja leaders arrested, many of whom were charged with trees in a capital offense. But this being Liberia, the charges were soon dropped. Indeed, the government's actions after the riots followed a time-honored custom. The offenders were imprisoned, brutalized, and humiliated until they offered up apologies like errant children, and then they were released, end quote. It was then, in early 1980, that a key leader of PAL, the wonderfully named Gabriel Bacchus Matthews created his own political party, the Progressive People's Party, which would stand against the true Whig Party, which had been ruling Liberia for decades, in the Monrovia mayoral election. You can guess how Tolbert responded to the first true democratic challenge to the Whig Party in 100 years. Suppression. Shut down the black markets, take away what little they have, then double the amount of floggings and executions, put them on TV, broadcast them live. So fear, more fear, make everything about that, floggings. Who's going to be there? Fear, blanket coverage, shove it in their faces. Then, in March 1980, the Progressive People's Party responded with calls for a general strike, a strike that would shut down Liberia and cut the profits of the true Whig ruling elite. Again, the results should have been predictable. James Kimmett explains, quote, Tolbert had Matthews and the rest of the PPP leadership thrown in jail once again. The government charging them with sedition and the capital offense of treason set their trial for April 14th. It would never come to pass. The trial, the political infighting, the Tolbert administration, and America, Liberia itself would very soon be swept away by a more dangerous force than disgruntled young radicals. Distracted by the agitation of Matthews and the PPP, Tolbert and the rest of the true Whig Party oligarchs were unaware of developments in the barracks of the Barclay Training Center half a mile up the beach, just a leisurely short walk from the executive mansion. Few Liberians or foreigners took the armed forces of Liberia seriously. The AFL was poorly trained and equipped, and its officer corps was known mostly for providing sinecures for the privileged sons of the Americo-Liberian elite. It was the army of a tiny, indebted nation that had faced no external enemy since the close of the scramble for Africa in the early 20th century. The enlisted men were natives, usually recruited from the more isolated and least civilized ethnic groups of the interior. That is, those least likely to challenge the existing order. 
While some natives saw the army as an opportunity to better themselves, the reality was just the opposite. Soldiers were paid a pittance, housed in rank and leaky barracks, and their duties frequently involved petty chores for officers and other elites. It was not unusual to see a platoon of privates clipping hedges at a government minister's house or parking cars at a swank diplomatic reception at the Ducor Hotel. Samuel Doe, the slim, sad-eyed sergeant who rose through the ranks under the old regime only to play a leading role in the coup, came from the smallish Kron tribe. At the Barracks Union Night School, he was taught by the infamous Amos Sawyer. He learned to read and write and at the same time received a political education, Marxism, African nationalism, third world liberation, and the bitter history of settler-native relations were all part of the curriculum. Doe either did not hear or chose to ignore his professor's caveat that change must come peacefully through the political process. Now, Samuel Doe and the simple soldiers serving with him weren't sophisticated cynics, like many of you Westerners listening to this broadcast. They couldn't even read and write before their teachers taught them how to do it. And they believed what they were taught by their educators in a way that's hard for many of you who are suffused in different teachers, ideologies, and internet debates to understand. I noticed this same thing when I researched kamikaze pilots. So did Yukio Mishima. The pilots were simple. They lived in a black and white world with little gray area. They trusted and intelligently obeyed their teachers. There was no cynicism among the kamikaze. Now, I'm not saying there was no cynicism among the millions of Japanese youth raised under the imperial Japanese school system. There was. However, among the kamikaze subset, the pilots, there was a simpleness that's hard for many of you to understand. But that simpleness was a form of strength as well. I noticed the same thing about paratroopers in my research on the French-Algerian War. And when you face a simple enemy, sometimes it is necessary to strengthen yourself through simplicity. Two, as one samurai said, climb down the ladder of reason when faced with the high wire of faith. I know this is a hard truth for many of you to swallow, and yet it is still a political truth, a metaphysical reality. Anyway, Samuel Doe, his trusting mind, chock full of settler depredations and native irredentism, was underpaid and bored half a mile away from Tolbert and the verdant grounds of the presidential palace, literally flowing with milk and honey, not to mention women and alcohol. All a strong man had to do was reach out and take it. And one night, that's just what Samuel Doe did. Now, I'd like to tell you what happened that night, but there's a problem. There are many different conflicting accounts of what happened at the presidential palace that night. And to make a long story short, I'm going to let James comment who spent years of his life researching and writing his history of Liberia, tell the story to the best of his ability. Quote, It was the events of March and April 1980, in the last scorching days of the dry season, that gave the conspirators a sense of urgency. Tolbert was lashing out against enemies real and imagined, including those at the barracks. Officers perceived as sympathetic to the radicals were being thrown in the brig. Big mistake. I've got a key insight for any dictator listening to this. No matter what, keep your soldiers well-fed, well-paid and happy. The soldiers put their plans into action on the evening of April 11th to ensure that Tolbert, who usually slept at his well-fortified upcountry compound, was at the mansion. They recruited his chauffeur to tip them off. The men gathered on the beach behind the mansion and broke into two groups. One would enter the residence and the other would provide backup in case troops loyal to Tolbert tried to intervene. Then, according to several accounts, the first group walked across the executive mansion lawn and... 
knocked on the front door. It was all over in about an hour. Conspirators on Tolbert's household staff let the soldiers right in. They raided the armory. The poorly armed revolutionaries had only two rifles between them, gunned down the surprise guards, and made their way to Tolbert's eighth floor bedroom. That's right, this mansion was eight stories tall. Why Tolbert did not escape is unclear. His wife later said she was awoken by gunfire and then men broke into her bedroom who were virtually naked and horrifyingly masked like warriors during Liberia's tribal wars. Tolbert, half-dressed, pleaded for his life, even offering the soldiers a suitcase filled with American dollars he kept in his room. He then ran into the hallway where he was shot and then his throat was cut. Doe's presence and actions during these events have not been proven. Most witnesses place him with the troops outside the mansion. Doe himself would remain vague on the events of that night. But all that matters is where Doe was the next morning, in the broadcast booth of the national radio station, announcing to the Liberian people that Tolbert was dead, the People's Redemption Council was in power, and that a new day had dawned in Liberia. He spoke in a country English that no Liberian had ever heard coming from the radio before. Gone forever are the days of who you know, and do you know who I am, he told listeners. Two days later in his first formal address as chairman of the PRC, we now enter the time of what can you do? This is the people's thing, our people's thing. Long live the People's Redemption Council. Long live the Republic of Liberia. Liberians danced in the streets of Monrovia. There's little doubt that Sergeant Doe is popular here, noted a New York Times reporter. He was greeted by thousands who struggled to even touch him. When he smiled, the crowds roared, and when he waved, they cheered, end quote. Doe also became popular with the intellectuals who had fostered his political worldview. He understood that he and his men, many of them illiterate, could not run a government, so he had the older settler elite dismissed from their posts and the young radicals sprung from jail put in their place. The Americo-Liberian era had come to an end. The old guard had not just lost their jobs, but their status, their privileges, and their property. Survivors would later describe a world turned upside down. The former First Lady Victoria Tolbert recalled a dark basement room at the executive mansion where she was imprisoned without food and water for days. Defense Minister and Tolbert's son-in-law, M. Burley Holder, remembered feeling his way through the jungle outskirts of the capital amid a ferocious downpour, futilely attempting to escape his pursuers. On the streets of Monrovia, drunken soldiers careened through the capital and stolen Lincolns and Chevrolets they did not know how to drive, breaking through the gates of Americo Villas in the better parts of town. Anybody with light skin or a settler pedigree was taunted by crowds and then beaten by men in uniforms. Elite women were raped. The ruling Americos were rounded up and thrown naked into cells at the Barclay Training Center, where just hours before the radicals themselves had been held. True Whig leaders were charged with corruption, treason, violation of human rights, and anything else the PRC could think of, legitimate or not. Within days, the men were paraded into a makeshift courtroom in front of a five-member military tribunal. The ex-finance minister, J.T. Phillips, displayed bruises from a recent pistol whipping. Dennis had nothing on but a pair of jeans. If the old Americo regime had hewn to the letter of the law while ignoring its spirit, the new did away with all pretenses. Mr. Frank Stewart, one of the judges demanded of the former budget director, how many houses you got? Four, but in 1957, the price of cement was very cheap, so my wife and I, we used small loans from the bank, and for seven years we worked building the blocks we needed to construct. Another judge broke in. Holy Christ, cut this short, or we're going to be sitting here listening to this shit right through lunch. Cutting things short was exactly what Doe did, as Stewart and 12 other 
top Tolbert administration officials, including Chesson, were dragged to a Monrovia beach, lassoed to hastily erected telephone poles, and... They were shot to death by members of the armed forces of Liberia on April 22nd, just 10 days after the coup. And thus the 150-year rule of the mixed-race Americo elite of Liberia came to a cacophonous end. Liberia would never be the same, but there's much rot in a country, and Liberia had a long way to fall before she reached rock bottom. And I'll tell you about that in next month's podcast. A historian describes what happened to the Americos of Liberia after the coup of 1980, quote, The coup and executions were but a prelude to the unspeakable horror just over the horizon. However corrupt, unjust, incompetent, and occasionally brutal the Americo regime had been across its 133-year reign, its crimes paled in comparison with the dictatorships, invasions, assassinations, civil wars, and anarchy that followed. As for the people who built that regime, the ultimate survivors in a hostile world, who struggled from the very beginning to live up to the high ideals on which their great and worthy endeavor was founded, but who so often fell short. They would be scattered far and wide, many of them ending up in the United States, end quote. But Liberia and history kept moving forward. Join us next month as I recount the bloody and cannibalistic wars that soon followed Samuel Doe's coup. And until then, I want to thank everyone who writes in and everybody who leaves a five-star review. Thanks for helping me out. But before I go, I want to tell you something. Let the bench be the meaning of your life. The cracked leather, the sweat pooling on your back, knurled steel in your grasp. Let it be the expression of your soul. The iron grip is a testament. 300 pounds spinning in the air says something. It says, here is a man that cannot be moved easily. It says, here is a man who knows dedication. The transformed arms, the bulging chest, the women gasp when they see it. They peek at you from snake-like eyes. They want to wrap themselves around you. Human adders spitting invisible venom. They long to spiderwalk their fingers across your chest. Let the bench be the meaning of your life. Regular as the setting sun, constant as the rising moon. Throw the weights above your head. Bend the bar in your rage. I see them laughing at you. The ex-girlfriend, the hiring committee, the thugs and the fools. Just let them laugh. Picture them in your mind, but lift. Just lift. See them blinking, dumbfounded as the bar rises, and you too will rise above them all. The petty and the base will nod their heads. Here is one worthy to rule. Here is one with commitment. And even if they steal your natural place from you, in their hearts they will know they are lesser. In their souls they will know they were ill-fathered. But you, son of Thor, you were born to rise. So lift the revolving cylinders high. One set is never enough. Transform your arms into mechanical rods, rifle-operating rods. They snap forward, designed to be strong, designed to be the best. You, you, you are the best. And they all know it. Divine one sent from heaven to rule. Let the bench be the meaning of your life. From the book, Poems for No One.